0: The subject we're going to cover tonight is one that is supposed to be at the heart of modern British society. Um, If you were to write a list of the top ten values that somebody would associate perhaps with living in Britain in the year 2016, um, then I would think that this particular word, or the reverse of it, would come probably again and again in lots of people's lists we're looking at the whole subject of tolerance or intolerance and how we should respond as Christians to the world in which we find ourselves, living in a society and a culture where one of the things seems to be we are supposed to be tolerant. And yet no one seems to be able to determine or decide exactly what we're allowed to be tolerant about or towards. And certainly those things about which we're supposed to be intolerant. And you only find out what those sort of unwritten values are as to those things of which we are to be intolerant when you cross this invisible line. And for Christians it can be particularly tricky and particularly challenging because again and again and again, Christians are the ones who are called out as being intolerant. It seems that we're allowed to believe whatever we like, as long as what we believe as Christians doesn't go against the norm, doesn't go against that which has become acceptable by, well, what's perceived to be the majority of people, but may in fact not be the majority of people at all. Just take a look at some of these statements from a few celebrities that I found online. Uh, Lady Gaga, that well-known philosopher and theologian, uh, said, I think tolerance and acceptance and love is something that feeds every community. Another theologian theologian and philosopher, CeeLo Green, uh, said, Tolerance compromise understanding, acceptance, patience. I want all those tools to be very sharp tools in my shed. I don't know what that means, but it means something. It reaches its ultimate conclusion, of course, in one of the icons of our time, David Beckham, who said this, I respect all religions, but I'm not a deeply religious person. But I try and live life in the right way, respecting other people. I wasn't brought up in a religious way, but I believe there is something out there that looks after you. We're definitely going to get Brooklyn, one of their children christened, but we don't know into which religion yet. Now, I don't blame David Beckham. Fantastic right foot, fantastic left foot. um, Fashion icon, etc., etc. But not really known for his expertise in theology. But what has shaped someone like David Beckham's views about religion is that sort of attitude that pervades a lot of our society in the so-called liberal West. Over the past 60 years, we've benefited as a nation ...from becoming a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. The reality is that now, people from all around the world now call Britain home. Their families may originate from the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, the Far East... ...India, Pakistan, (coughs) Bangladesh, or indeed from across Europe itself... ...Hungary, Italy, Germany, for example the royal family... ...or France, like my ancestors... Uh, the Huishards came across with the Normans in 1066. So all of us, that's true, all of us, you look disbelieving at me, but it is true. There was nobody called Huishard before 1066 living in what we now call Britain. We are all, to one degree or another, immigrants, which actually drives a cart and horse through the arguments of people like UKIP because every single one of us who inhabit the UK, Great Britain and Northern Ireland are to some degree or another immigrants. Now, having such a mixed-race, multi-ethnic society that you and I live in brings huge benefits. It brings incredible cuisine. One day, James will go further than the Great British Roast. One day, he will be able to cook a chicken curry. One day he might venture into a tagine. Have you tried those yet? Yeah, okay. Any other foreign sort of continental food that you've tried over the years? Cooking? Tapas, you man of the world, you. Oh, hang on, you were in Spain yesterday. Okay, well, that was no. You went to Barcelona, so to have tapas, it was no big leap of faith, was it? No. Um, But the reality is it does bring huge benefits. So we get fantastic cuisine from all across the world, actually on our doorstep. We get remarkable diversity, and we get different faith communities. So in most cities across the UK, um, and it it has noticeably in the the time that I've lived in Scotland increased even here in Scotland, mosques will sit next to cathedrals. Temples will nestle next to synagogues. Gurdwaras are found next to cathedrals. And something, therefore, has happened in the way that we think about faith and religion in Britain in 2016. And we've started to confuse two things. One of the leading thinkers and practitioners in world mission in the last century, a guy called uh, Leslie Newbegin, who lived and worked for many, many years in India, and uh, in his retirement lived in, in Birmingham, just opposite Winston Green Prison. Uh, one of the foremost thinkers about world mission, observed this on coming back to Britain just before his retirement. He wrote, It has become commonplace to say that we live in a pluralistic society. Not merely a society which is in fact plural in the variety of culture, religion and lifestyle that it embraces, but pluralistic in the sense that the plurality is to be approved and cherished. Now, on one level... Uh, New Begin is absolutely right. But he's put his finger on something that has also happened at the same time. This confusion between the embrace and welcome of people of different ethnicities and different races and different racial backgrounds and different faith communities. But because quite often people's ethnic background or ethnic identity is tied in with, in many, many cases, their faith identity, somehow to be seen to criticise or approve one is to be seen to criticise or approve of the other. And what has happened is this confusion. Diversity of culture being appreciated and welcomed has very quickly and quite subtly become the validity of all truth. So in a, a poem, one of his poems, um, Stuart Henderson or Steve Turner, said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. And you quite often hear that on, on radio phone But I believe this sincerely. The difficulty with that is that sincerity isn't the test of truth. Just because you believe something sincerely doesn't make it true. I believe that Manchester United are the best football team. Well, this season, that's very far from the truth. We might believe different things about different things, but some of them are palpably contradictory and therefore they can't both be as equally true. John Hick, who is a philosopher of religion, wrote this To say that whatever is sincerely believed and practiced is by definition true would be the end of all critical discrimination, both intellectual and moral. And over the past 60, 70 years, something has happened. Two things. Our world and our view of the world and our appreciation of the world has become bigger which is enriching and enlightening and informative and brilliant. So the world has become a bigger and a smaller place at the same time. So 10, 20 years ago, James couldn't have stood on this stage and said, yesterday I was in Spain. He could have done, but that would have only happened once a year. It would have taken six months of preparation for his annual holiday but James, being the modern man that he is, popped over to Barcelona just for two nights, because he's that kind of guy. (laughs) You see what's happened? Cheap airfares, the continent of Europe becoming more and more accessible, the world has shrunk. And yet, at the same time, our appreciation through things like the internet, our world has become bigger. We're more aware of what is happening around the world than at perhaps any other time in the history of humanity. So our view of the world has become both bigger and smaller, and that's great to appreciate other people's cultures and values, but at the same time, something else has happened. Our view of the world has got bigger, but our view of God has actually become smaller. Just over uh, about 10 years ago now, 115-year-olds were asked whether they thought God understood nuclear physics, 70% of those who were asked said no. When asked would God understand nuclear physics in five years time, 40% said maybe. You see what's happened? God has become limited to our understanding. God has become limited to our knowledge. God has become limited, shrunk, to the way in which we think. We might understand nuclear physics in five years' time, or not, therefore God has a chance of understanding nuclear physics in five years' time. God has somehow become smaller. He's been reduced to our level. He is limited to our understanding, our imagination, our scientific knowledge. We forget that he is the knower of all things. And he was there long before nuclear physics. And at the same time, alongside that, our Christianity has also been reduced. The story of our faith is being retold and reinterpreted, leading to statements like this one. I think it's important to remember that Christianity was based in love and tolerance and forgiveness and acceptance. I think it's important to remember that Christianity was based in love and tolerance and forgiveness and acceptance. It sounds very plausible. There's only one problem it's not actually true. You see what's happened? In the way that many, many people in the West, many, many people in Britain, many, many people in Scotland will think about the Christian faith. The Christian faith began based in love and tolerance and forgiveness and acceptance. So how can you as a Christian think dot, dot, dot? Something that is intolerant. Something that is not accepting. And you see what's happened is that of those four things, two of them are true, but two of them aren't true. Four very different things, love, tolerance, forgiveness and acceptance, are being lumped together. And the result is that Christianity, conveniently, becomes the same as the lowest common denominator in every world religion. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhs, Christianity, the Baha'i faith, Mormons, they're all really about the same thing. They're about love and tolerance and forgiveness and acceptance. The only problem is that this table and this week of all weeks remind us that those words are not true. This table reminds us that God is love, but it's a radical type of love. It's a unique form of love. It's a love so dramatically different that the ancient world had to invent a word, agape, to try and describe the self-sacrificial love at the heart of who Jesus is and what happened in that first Holy Week. That led him to ride a donkey 2,000 years ago into Jerusalem. To spend a week overturning the tables of the existing religious and political temples. A week that would culminate in his death and resurrection. A weekend that would change forever the relationship between God and humanity. That's what we'll be celebrating and remembering this week. That's what we'll be proclaiming together on Good Friday. That's what we'll be declaring together next Easter Sunday. Not that God is a God of love, acceptance, tolerance and forgiveness but that God is a God of love and forgiveness who will not accept and will not tolerate some things. It's very different to the message that our Western society wants us to hear. And we'll remember next weekend the death and resurrection of Jesus that led to a movement that was founded on not accepting and not tolerating the accepted norms of the culture and the cultures that that movement, the early church, found itself in. Whether that society and culture was Jewish, or Roman, or Greek, or Pagan. I just want to take a few minutes to look at one particular branch of that movement, in the Greek city of Corinth, who found itself facing just this dilemma? How could they, and did they want to, live lives that were different and distinctive to the society and the culture in which they found themselves? Joe is going to come and read a passage from one Corinthians and chapter six. So, if you've got a smartphone or a Bible app, or indeed a real Bible, uh, turn to one Corinthians chapter six and follow it through.
1: anything you say and not everything is beneficial I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both the body however is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body by his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that that your body are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, for it is said the two will become one flesh But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from the sexual immorality and all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies.
0: Corinth was a culture saturated in sex. Even though we may think that our society is obsessed with sex, Corinth was far more. Sex drove many of the cultic religions found in the pagan and Roman temples. And here is this church, this group of Jesus followers, trying to live life differently to the people around them. Based on their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was God's promised one, that Jesus was the definitive article as to who God really is the source of real authority, truth, and power. Now, Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to live this different, distinctive lifestyle. He believes that God wants them to treat human beings, to treat sex and every other human being in a different, more fulfilling way. But the pressure upon the early Christians in Corinth to conform was incredibly strong. We may think that the pressure upon us to conform to the sexual attitudes and behaviour of our society is strong. It's actually nothing compared to what it was like in the ancient world. This was a society just as multi-faith and just as relativistic as ours. Nobody wanted to stand out. Nobody wanted to be seen as different or distinctive. And so what had happened is that the Corinthian Christians had rationalised behaving the same as everybody else. And their logic went like this. Christ has died to set us free. That's the heart of the message of Easter our sins have been forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross we are now included in the reign rule of god we're included within the kingdom of god so now because we're included in the kingdom of god it doesn't actually matter how we behave our sins have been forgiven we're in god's kingdom and religion, particularly for the ancient Greeks, of whom this Corinthian church were the majority made up of, to them, religion was primarily a spiritual thing. What happened to the body wasn't that important because faith. Religion, that was all spiritual, that was ethereal, that was all stuff that you couldn't touch. This stuff, (coughs) sorry, (laughs) meant to do it on that sign where there's no microphone, the flesh and blood stuff, that wasn't really important. And so it didn't matter how they behaved. And so basically, they've been saying to Paul in communication between themselves and the apostle. What he quotes back to them at the start of that reading that Joe read for us in chapter 6 and verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Now doesn't that echo what lots of people in our society say, think and feel? I have the right to do anything. You can't tell me what to do. I've got the right to do anything. If it feels good, I will do it. As long as I'm not hurting somebody else, I'll do it. If I can afford it, if it's legal, just, as long as it's not immoral, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else or me, I have the right to do anything. The Corinthian Christians, for them, rights were just as important. They thought that they could do anything. The Jewish law no longer applied to the church. But Paul says just because the Jewish law with its expectations doesn't apply to you, it doesn't actually mean that you can do anything you want. Yes, you are free, but you're not free to do anything. So he says, verse 12, you say you have the right to do anything. But the fact is that not everything is beneficial. You see, certain things do require certain rules. So, a parachutist, a skydiver, could say, like this guy, I'm free. I want to experience what it's like to jump from 10,000 feet without a parachute, which is what this guy does. So, there he is, and that's real. It's not photoshopped, it's real. That guy jumped. If you look it up on Google, you'll see that a series of photographs where the guy is standing just outside the plane with a whole lot of other people and he jumps and he jumps without a parachute. Guy's a complete fruitcake, <laughs> but he jumps because he wants to know what it's like to experience real freedom. This is thrill seeking taken to the nth degree. Now, of course. The skydiver could decide to do that. I don't want to be bound by conventions. I want to experience freedom and I will refuse to use a parachute. He can do that and he did do that. But at some point he is constrained by another law called the law of gravity because he is falling very quickly. And in falling very quickly without a parachute, there was only going to be one conclusion. No, he didn't die. Um, Because that would be cruel and crass of me to show a photograph in church of all places of somebody who died. I wouldn't do that. Um, And... um, (laughs) About, what you can't see is just off, out of camera, there are about 10 skydivers who've got parachutes and they all come down and get him and they, they carry him down and they, they, he's, he's fine. <laughs> but you see, what he's an illustration of is how lots of people in our society think. I believe I have the right to do anything. Well, yes, on one level you do. But actually there are higher laws, there are higher rules, there are some external things actually that God has put in place that means if you live out with those generally accepted rules and guidelines there will be consequences for you secondly paul says you have you say you have the right to do anything but you also say i will not be mastered by anything the corinthian christians were saying i want to be free to do anything but I don't want to be controlled, mastered, or dictated to by anything. The Christians in Corinth were very conscious of and insistent upon their rights. And this word that's translated by mastered uh, in the end of verse 12, um, it's the same word that we get the word authority from. It's the Greek word exousia. And in one form or another, it occurs 16 times in chapters 6 through to 11 of 1 Corinthians. They believe that they have the right, they have authority, that they don't want to be master-controlled by anything, because they're free to do anything. But Paul points out again and again that the only one who has the right to control them is Jesus. And that actually following him is absolutely not upon about insisting upon your rights that's the last thing that a Christian should actually be thinking about being a Christian being a follower of Jesus is not about your rights that's the whole point of the Christian faith That's why Paul writes in Philippians about your attitude to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, considered himself nothing. And he writes that amazing, or quotes that amazing early hymn, song, creed about Jesus taking the very nature of a servant, emptying himself, giving up everything that he was rightfully entitled to in being born as a baby and living as a human being and It it sort of follows this downward spiral. Becoming obedient, even unto death. Even death on a cross. Dying the death of a slave. Of somebody cursed. Somebody that God couldn't possibly love. Jesus gave up all his rights, Paul is saying. So the last thing you, as Christians, Christ followers, in Corinth or in Edinburgh should be is insisting upon your rights. The whole point of the Christian faith is that it's about dying to self. Dying to your rights. And then the third thing that Paul says is countering this argument, this quite logical argument on one level that the Corinthian Christians had. They said, you say, verse 13, food was for the stomach and the stomach was for food and God will destroy both. And what they're in essence saying that is, well look, the food is made for stomach and the stomach is made for food. In the same way that the body is made for sex and sex is made for the body. Now God's going to destroy food and the stomach and because Christianity and faith isn't about flesh and blood stuff, it's about the spirit, it doesn't matter what we do, with our bodies, then we can have sex with as many people as we like. We can have sex just like the people who follow the cultic uh, pagan religions in Corinth. We don't need to be distinctive in this particular way. We've got freedom because Christ has died to set us free. And at the end of the day, Christianity is spiritual. It doesn't matter how we live or what we do with our bodies. Paul just reminds them very simply, verse 14, that we don't just believe in a spiritual resurrection. What we will celebrate next Sunday is not the fact or the belief, the myth, that being a Christian is about when we die going up to heaven. That's not what we will celebrate next Sunday, we will celebrate the fact that Jesus was raised physically from the dead. There was something different, tangibly different, about the resurrection body of Jesus. It was not the same as his body before death, it was different, he could appear and disappear at will, he could travel great distances, but it's physical, He can walk through doors, he can appear through walls, but it also eats fish. It cooks breakfast. We believe in a physical resurrection. So if we believe in a physical resurrection, where the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise us and give us new bodies, but there is a link between our resurrection bodies and the bodies we have here and now before death, then Paul says it does matter what you do with your bodies. It does matter what you do sexually with your bodies. And he points out that sex, verse 16, is not simply a physical act. Do you not know that he or she who unites themselves with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. To have sexual intercourse with somebody is not simply a physical act. You can treat it as that, but it was always meant to be so much more than that. It was meant to be emotional, it was meant to be physical, it was meant to be physiological, it was meant to be psychological, but it was also meant to be deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual. Because at some level, Paul is saying, going right back to Genesis, that when you have sex with somebody, the two become one. You are linked inextricably in some way. Now from this, some people have have got the wrong impression that somehow sexual sin is worse than any other sin. That's not true. Sometimes the church may give that impression... Sometimes the church, in calling out sexual sin, may leave people with the idea somehow that sexual sin is worse than any other sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all sin is the same. Whether it's tax evasion, whether it's gossip, whether it's dishonesty, whether it's fraud, whether it's lying or whether it's sexual sin. There are innumerable ways in which you and I fall short of God's standards for us as human beings. But Paul says, because a sexual sin is a sin against the body, it's not worse than any other sin, but its effects can be more powerful and long-lasting. And over the years, I've talked with people who've been deeply, deeply, deeply affected by the fact that they slept with somebody. Sometimes 30, 40 years before, it's stayed with them. They feel a guilt. They don't feel about other sin because they've sinned against their body, Paul says. Paul insists that Christians are to lead different and distinctive lives lives of love and lives of forgiveness but he also insists that some things are not to be tolerated or accepted whether it be poverty or injustice or individual sin or using sex outside of god's designs for humanity this table and this week remind us that god is not limited to human understanding or expectations The Jesus of Easter week is not the lowest common denominator found in all world religions. He is unique. He is different. He is special. He is the one above all who is the way, the truth and the life. He is the one who came and lived and died and was raised again to offer us a life that is different and distinctive and the power to live that life. So should Christians be loving? Yes. Should Christians be forgiving? Yes. Should Christians be hospitable? Yes. Should Christians be respectful? Yes. But should Christians be tolerant? Not in the sense that our society means. Because we don't believe that all truth is equally valid. We can sometimes appear arrogant by claiming that we have the truth. We don't have the truth. But we believe in the one who is the truth. And that's different. And it transforms this table, and it transforms this week, and it transforms next weekend into the most important event in human history, where God could not tolerate human sin because he loved us too much. Let's pray together.